what's going on, everybody? You're listening to The Sane Show, the show about nothing and everything. I'm your host, Cliff, and today I have a good friend of mine joining me today. I have policy analyst for Chatham County, North Carolina, Stephanie Watkins-Cruz. How are you doing, Steph? I'm doing great, Cliff. How about you? I am good. I'm good. Glad to have you on The Sane Show. I'm excited. It's, it's actually it's funny that we... We get, we get on the same show. It's been a while since we actually talked, but it's good to have you on. And you know, I'm excited to get the show rolling and have this conversation with you that we're getting ready to have. Before I introduce a topic, like I always do, I want to take a shout out to the listeners. Thank you guys for continuing to listen and continuing to like, subscribe, follow, and spread the word about the same show. So shout out to all the listeners in all 50 plus countries. Thank you guys. Love you guys. You know, really been a huge help to the same show. And if you are listening and you're not following us, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. That's the same underscore show. That's the same S A N E underscore show again, S A N E underscore show. That's on Twitter and Instagram. And then you can follow us on Facebook, the same show again on Facebook. That's the same show. So today we're going to be talking about homelessness, poverty, followed by an interview with Steph so that you guys can get to learn a little bit more about her, what she does, and a little bit about her journey as well. So let's go ahead and kick it off with the first topic, homelessness. So you and I were talking about this, and obviously this is something that's near and dear to us. We were talking about this before the show. Obviously, that's something I do with all of my guests, but it's, there's so much to it. I know one of the things we were talking about is the misconceptions that American society have about homelessness. And I know in talking about the misconceptions, you know, one of the things that I think has to do with that is how we portray our homeless population or just the idea of you know being homeless within entertainment. On top of that, like all these false notions that people grow up with knowing about homelessness. Because, you know, when I was thinking about this, one of the things that came to mind, like I was telling you, is the report I did sophomore year of high school, going out and volunteering at the homeless shelter, you know, helping feed the homeless. And I just want to say that was a that was a really great opportunity. And I think everybody should do something like that, because it's not it's not just the the part of being able to help somebody else in need It's more so I think the most important part was being able to have that conversation with those individuals and understanding that this whole idea, honestly, I don't even know the misconceptions I had because I kind of understand better why some of those people and even the people today have really fell on hard times. So having that conversation with them and getting a better understanding about why people end up homeless. What's your take on all of this? My take on homelessness is is pretty vast. Um, I mean, as you know, that through personal experience with with homelessness is kind of why I became such a, a housing nerd in the first place. But I think that my first kind of take on homelessness is that it is actually completely normal. We cannot allow it to seem like this extreme thing that only happens to certain people anymore because that's no longer the case, right? Homelessness is defined in so many different ways that people don't even realize. The government defines it in really 
specific ways for kids and then other really specific ways for everyone else. But the definitions are really quite varied. So they can range from, okay, the most common is you are actually living on the street. You don't have a physical shelter. You are living outdoors. Mm-hmm. And then it could go, you're homeless if you're living in a shelter, in a homeless shelter. You're homeless if you live in a hotel, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not a primary resident. And you can be homeless if you're even sleeping on someone's couch. You see right. that more often with kids because their definition, the federal government's definition for young people who are homeless is a little more lenient than for adults. But let's say if a family is crashing with another family because they're in between homes, they're technically homeless. So I would say my first point of that, it is a lot more normal than you would think. And it's not right. to say normal, it's all good, but that a lot more people are experiencing homelessness. And some people might say, oh, I don't want to, I'm not homeless. Clearly, I have a home where I have a roof over my head. Okay, well then, homelessness and housing and stability are, are kind of like brother and sister, right? So right. There's, well, there's a sense of housing instability there. For sure. And one of the things I did when I was taking, putting this recording together, I went online. Like I told you, I went and Googled like documentaries around homelessness. And first I went to Google and about a handful came up that were actually centered around homelessness. Right. Uh, whether it be for about adults or about teens, about children. Then I went to Netflix, typed in, did, did a little search. The closest, the only thing that came up was Pursuit of Happiness. And that's while that, <laughs> yeah, like, while that's a great movie and a movie that everyone should watch, it's like, it's not, it doesn't, that doesn't do it justice. And all, at least 100% of the, the way, right? Because you're, you're talking, you're following, you know, it's a movie. You're seeing somebody's journey from beginning end. Right. It doesn't really like dive deep into that. So that really doesn't cut it for me. Go to Hulu, do a search. And I come across one and I wrote it down. It is the Motel Kids of Orange County. Mm-hmm. So you have that. And you know, one of the, I guess it was kind of a bit of a frustration for me because it's like, all right, I go to these major streaming services and I look for documentaries about this particular topic. I don't see anything, but we have everything out there. We have everything else out there, right? Think about food, medicine, crime, politics, environment, or environmental stuff. Even like nonsense extraterrestrials. I'd be on there searching for a lot. Of, <laughs> I've gotten into documentaries, so there's some crazy things out there. But it's like, what? I mean, this is something equally as important, right? Because right. we're talking about the well-being of people, and I think. The reason, you know, this is just my opinion. The reason that we don't see that stuff out there is because, and I don't know the research, but in my, from what I see, it seems that the the percentage of the population in which we consider to be homeless, quote unquote, isn't large enough for people to consider highlighting, especially because when I ride around and I see it, it feels like we just... When we think about homeless, right? We think about the people on literally on the street, the people holding up the cardboard sign, asking yeah. for money or asking for a job, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like they're invisible, right? It's almost like they're the invisible part, invisible part of the population, yeah. and it's very disheartening. Oh, yeah. And 
go ahead. No, I, I'm completely on, on board with a lot of what, what you just said. I think that people are really uncomfortable with poor people. I think that the United States has historically just been really afraid of poor people. Afraid in the sense that the problem has gotten to the point where it is. It's enormous and it feels overwhelming. And so in a way, highlighting it um, would bring even more attention to it, right? Also, on the more positive side of it, there's some ethical concerns with videoing and interviewing people for movies and documentaries that are experiencing this, right? It's really difficult. So a lot of the stories that you see about homelessness in the United States, homelessness in any respective state, you see in books. A big book that kind of just hit the scene and kind of everybody was like super obsessed with, and it's still pretty popular, it's called Evictus by Matthew Desmond. So a lot of the highlighting of homelessness and poverty happens in books. And I think that's why people miss it, right? Because who's who other than, you know, someone weird like myself is going to be like, oh, man, there's this 400-page book about the homeless of the southeastern United States. Wow. And it's awkward, right? It's, it's genuinely awkward to see people in a shelter, to interview them, to have their, their lives and their, their trauma, right? Because being homeless is traumatizing. I don't know if entertainment has fully figured out how to show that, especially here in the United States. I think if you go more locally, you'll fall, you'll find smaller documentaries, like in Chicago, Detroit, and New York, especially right. in California and Seattle. I think in the microcosms of the entertainment industries and in those specific kind of geographic locations, even here mm-hmm. in North Carolina, you might find smaller documentaries. But as far as they're getting to the the large Netflix and Hulu and stuff. I think it's just because we're not comfortable admitting that. In part, this is part of our society's fault. I think I think we're just uncomfortable with poverty. That's that's very true. It's very true. And you know, one of the things I thought about too is because sometimes, like, we can have a conversation around things, but it, it's like I was watching John Oliver, and he was talking about something about pharmaceuticals, and, and he highlighted a lady who. He pulled a clip from like a local news station and he was talking about how she had to choose between her heart medicine or her insulin. And until you see something like that, it really makes you say, wow, Mm -hmm. because it's one thing to talk about it, but then it's another thing for people to actually see it. And that's the hard part, right? Getting people to actually, because once they see it, then it's like, and they can that because it's almost like that shock value. Right. Like people see that and they're just like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. We need to fix this <laughs> kind of thing. Like that's what that, that's the only way people are gonna act. Because honestly, when I saw that, I'm like, wow. Literally, like this lady's choosing between and she's like, Well, I need my heart to work. You know, and then I'll just have to get the insulin when I can. Right. And it's just like, wow, like that is terrible. Like that, we have many people living in these kinds of conditions. So, no, I yeah, I completely agree. At that shock value is priceless, honestly, for people to pay attention to an issue. Every issue definitely deserves its limelight. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, a lot of these issues are intertwined, right? Because that lady possibly is not only choosing between her heart medicine and insulin, but maybe she has to choose between heart medicine and insulin because she chose rent first. And so she right. goes, can't. 
So then she could only choose between one or two of her medicines, right? Right. A lot of these are so intertwined. It's, it's, it's crazy. And the shock value, like you mentioned, is really what gets people to pay attention. Right. All right, now we're back. We're, now we're going to talk about poverties. Honestly, I just want to say, sir, I was actually debating, like, should we have talked about this first or second? But we're talking about it, so it's important. I, I just thought it was kind of weird. <laughs> Let's talk about homelessness first and then poverty, but they're both equally as important. And we were actually kind of touching on poverty going into this segment. So, you know, we were talking about the lady, you know, having to choose between heart medicine and insulin and, and then on top of that paying rent, want to make sure she has a place to stay. And when I was putting this one together, I went online and I, I kind of struggled when I was thinking about it. And but then I looked, I, I went to Google like poverty, right? And and I pulled this and I you know, I read this one two years earlier, but not having enough material possessions or income for a person's needs. Right. And then within poverty, there is relative poverty occurs when a person cannot meet a minimum level of living standards compared to others in the same time and place, right. which varies by society and country. Again, like we were talking about before, you know, being in a first world country like the United States, we have our definition for what poverty looks like. But right. then for certain countries in Africa and in a country like maybe like Indonesia and some of those places outside of or around mainland China, they have a different idea of what poverty is to them because they're not, not as advanced. So just thinking about it again, we're not having, not having enough material possessions or income and forcing people to have to make those kinds of decisions as far as, okay, with what I have on hand right now, should I pay for this or should I pay for that? And going without certain necessities. Yeah, people who are working and who are, you know, have a place to stay, but maybe going without health, health insurance, all those kinds of things that they have to, again, rationing. And it's crazy because it's almost like, with certain things for me and it's like except like, it may be things I don't need but it's like man do I, I'm gonna do this or do that like and then it's like which is more important <laughs> you know you know what? I'm gonna do this and then I, I can go without that right and it's like it's just it's just crazy idea of like how people when they don't when they do that with the things that they need because these are all things that people need people need their medicine people need a place to stay people need insurance and, you know, it's like you were saying, right, it's a, it's a broken system. It really is. I wrote it down. You know, I was talking about, you know, I don't want to get too political, but it's not really a political issue. And I guess I'm just thinking, like, making sure I don't, <laughs> like, I'm not sitting here trying to endorse anybody. But, <laughs> you know, these are, these are all, these are all issues of a, of a broken system or caused by a broken system. I know one of the things, too, that came to mind was how people deal with it because there's when i look at it there's two sides to how you deal with poverty right there's there's one side in which people I don't, and i don't want to say i guess like 
I, don't know, I want to be careful when I say succumb, right? I don't want to say like people give up um, or people, yeah, I just give up. I don't want to say people give up when it comes to poverty, but more so like people just may be in a position in which it's hard for them to come out of it because maybe they just don't know how to best come out of the situation. You understand where I'm coming from? Like it's kind of like a thing of like you don't know what you don't know, right? Right, right. And, and then I, there, yeah. go ahead. No, yeah, and I, I think, and I, I honestly, I appreciate your hesitancy to say the word succumb because I think that's important, the language that we use around people who are living in poverty. But I think what it is, and there's a lot of studies that show kind of the psychological impact of poverty, and sometimes it may be that folks who are going through this don't know what they don't know, but also research has shown that it affects your mind, it affects your brain, it affects the way that you foresee and the way that you look at priorities, right? And so what happens is it's not even a matter of succumbing. It's a matter of a person becomes so used to surviving that they stay in the survival mindset. The having to choose between this and this or A and B, food or new clothes or medicine or rent or you know transportation reliable transportation goes out okay so money for public transit uh versus medicine or 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 right there are tons of different choices that people have to make and it becomes almost second nature because when you're surviving you are not considering because honestly you don't have you you can't you can't if you're trying to survive you're not thinking about three five seven, ten years from now. You're just not. You can't because that's not what survival is. Survival is making it moment to moment to moment, day to day, week to week. And so I think that's essentially what people are, are, are going through. And because there are so many different types of poverty, right? So you have generational poverty, poverty that is just kind of passed on due to a number of things, whether it be where you live, like your zip code, the way that your government has invested in that area, your access to resources, absolute poverty, meaning you literally have nothing, relative poverty, meaning compared to one area or another group of people, one group of people is more poor than the other. There's urban poverty, which looks very different than rural poverty. Um, and then there's, uh, and you think about situational poverty, something really extreme happens. Um, and it causes you to lose everything or to lose enough to where all of a sudden you are strapped. So I think that poverty, no matter kind of what type it is, it forces people into this survival mode. And not everybody's survival mode gets them to the same place, right? For some, it means that they are able to survive and stay alive and maybe even become the ladder on which maybe the children or the grandchildren are able to kind of climb out of it using the survival methods that their family members have used or they just are simply continuing to survive that brings me to my next point because you know i was talking about you talking about not talking about you but talking to you about <laughs> you know kevin hart right in yeah. his new docuseries i've been talking a lot about you know don't f this up yeah. and it was interesting to watch him talk about his upbringing right he he grew up his mother did the best she could and he had to do without a lot you know in that day those 
don't talk about where he lived in, in Philadelphia and all that kind of stuff. And seeing where he is now and talking about how he obviously, like a lot of people, right, they, they want to come out of that situation they, and they want to make sure that their kids don't have to go through that. But on the other side of it, too, is because I kind of look at it as like a pro and a con, because especially when you talk about psychologically, yeah. when he talks about, especially because like his wife, you know, it's, it's, you know, they show clips of him being on the phone with his, his wife and, you know, she's kind of fussing at him for being busy all the time, not being at home. Right. And he talks about, well, if I'm not doing this, then this lifestyle that you have is no, is no more. But the other side of me says, well, you're worth millions of dollars and, not, and nothing wrong with him wanting to make more money. I don't knock anybody for that. Right. But just the idea that, dude, if you were to be, if this were to stop today, you're set for life. <laughs> you're good. Right. Because obviously you have all this money, you've been able to keep it and you've been able to make more. I know you're smart about it. I know he has accountants, financial advisors. He's making investments here and there. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he doesn't, he could quit comedy and still be good because he would make money off of the, just being Kevin Hart. Right? right. And that he would still get endorsement deals and all that other kind of cool stuff. Like he's, he's good. He's good. And it, it's almost like, it's almost like with Kobe Bryant and RIP, mm-hmm. but he was, he was the, he was the moneymaker. And I'm I'm sure I don't I don't know what his wife is doing or was doing, but they're good. Right. You know, he, he has an estate and like that is taken care of. I'm sure I don't I don't know what the situation is going to be. But part of me says the money might not be flowing in like it once was because he's not around anymore. But mm-hmm. they're good because they're going to be smart about it and that he built something that will sustain his family for the long run. But this, this whole idea that it's almost like it creates almost like a fear, right? That if you stop doing what you're doing, you're going to go all the way back to where you were. And that's just kind of where I'm getting, go ahead with uh, Kevin Hart. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, I think you're right. I think there is that subconscious fear. There is what I, what I was mentioning. And I think what you put really well, that's the evidence. That's the remnants of what he been, what he's gone through. It mm-hmm. may not ever matter that he has is worth millions of dollars, billions of dollars one day, whatever. That may not ever matter because there will most likely be a remnant or a part of him that is still nervous. And it may not happen every day, right? He may just attribute it to, oh, this is my hustle mentality. This is just how I work. But there is a psychological impact of not having had a lot or not having had exactly what you needed for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And then moving into and working into a, a place where that's not the case anymore, you're still afraid to lose it because you know what it's like to not have it. And I, I talk about a lot with a, a lot of my close friends is that for years, it's taken me a long time to kind of call a place home or to to be able to let myself feel like I'm at home. And that's a, that's a psychological remnant of having your home kind of snatched away. It also manifests, manifests itself in different ways, right? So trust. 
are you really easy to trust an opportunity that's given to you? Or do you question it to death until you absolutely know every single thing because you're trying to figure out the chances of it it falling through? And I think no matter how successful you are, I think that people, much like Kevin Hart, will have a little piece of that. And I think a piece of that is healthy, but it's also sad because I think that they have probably seen how quickly things can go wrong. Part of them is not able to fully live in the present. But it seemed for me, just from what I've seen of his movies and his stand up and his interviews, I think that he attributes that his psychological remnants of going through poverty and, and, and living in that and struggling. I think he attributes that and, and kind of lumps it in with his hustle mentality, which for him probably works really, really well. But it, it definitely is most likely really draining for him after at the end of the day. Yeah, that's for sure. It, it, it makes me think too because <laughs> it's like one of the things I think about is like I don't and I, I see this with some well-off people as well like mm-hmm. they don't want their kids to work as have to work as hard right? right they want their kids to be able to go through school and be a and be able to and be okay with because there, there's nothing wrong with being you know a middle-class American right nothing be able to be a middle-class American and not have to have those worries and not have to to want to work so hard to come out of a certain place and then try to, you know, make up, right? Like, okay, I want to make sure this gen- my, my kids are, are straight. They don't have to worry about this. They can just go and be and do what they do. But I am going to work hard enough to come out of this place and then make sure they don't have to deal with any of that. And if, and if I need to, help get them to wherever they need to get them and then them not have to have any of those worries so just that that <laughs> that kind of stuff so all right now for the interview gonna ask steph a few questions so that the listeners can get to learn a little bit more about you what you do and the cool things related to that as well. So tell me, and the listeners, as a policy analyst for Chatham County, North Carolina, what are some of your responsibilities? Uh, Sure. I work specifically in the county manager's office, and my kind of main priorities, if I were to try and sum it up, is to essentially support the county manager and other departments, as well as the elected commissioner, in any type of kind of policy research, development, analysis, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really broad and kind of vague, but what it kind of boils down to is I'm responsible for if my boss has a question specifically around, let's say, Chatham County, for example, is a, is a really, um, is a very agriculturally like focused place. It's growing quite a bit because it's actually part of the triangle. But, you know, they didn't make it a part of the triangle because it'd be like a trapezoid so that marketing didn't work. But it's <laughs> all the counties that are growing and it, it also is growing, but it has a long, long history of agriculture. So although I might not know much at all about agriculture, if my boss were to have a question or a commissioner were to have a question, I have to spend time and research that specific question. So let's say like, how many acres do we have in conservation? Okay, well, I would have to start the process of looking into that 
kind of creating a report and then creating a summary. Um, and if they had specific questions about like how much would it cost to do this or how much would it cost to do that, that would be something that I, I would help them with. On a kind of regular basis, what I like to tell people that I do is that policy analyst is just a really broad word for like a paid nerd, which I think fits me really well. <laughs> um, and so on top of researching different topics that people ask me to, I also manage our affordable housing uh, trust fund. And I also manage our emergency housing fund. I do the strategic planning for all of our departments in the county. So taking um, what is a much larger plan and kind of creating smaller strategic plans for different groups of departments. And then on top of that, I just kind of, well, and this is something that's more self-imposed, but I kind of make sure that I can serve as sort of a a liaison for the community, for the residents, right? Um, so as someone who is Black, but also Colombian, I try and connect with both those communities, both the Latina community or Latinx community and the African-American community. All right. So why this career path? And I know you kind of touched on that during the previous segments, but just really want to, you know, just dive into it a little bit more. So I actually had no intention of being a policy analyst. I just knew, <laughs> I, I, kind of, I kind of knew when I was in grad school, when I first started grad school in 2015, I thought I was going to work for a big housing nonprofit and I was going to just, just do everything housing and only housing. And then so I went to UNC for grad school and I, and I did a, I didn't, I got my master's in public administration and my master's in city and regional planning. And I focused on community and economic development as well as housing. As I went through the program, I realized that there's a lot more to housing than I thought. A lot of my preconceived notions about development, developers, growth, the way we kind of impact growth and the way we create growth or support it were changed completely. And so I, I thought toward the end of my graduate studies that I was going to work for a development company that specialized in affordable housing, because that's something that I, I became really interested in. I hated math all until, until they told, it, told me how to do math in terms of apartment units. And I never thought <laughs> I would like to do math at all, but kind of seeing the way the developers think in their financial models and learning the language that, you know, I I'm probably wasn't even supposed to learn was really appealing to me. In my summer, the summer before my final year of graduate studies, I actually interned for the county manager's office where I work now. Had a split internship with a nonprofit I already was working with and with the county manager's office. So I was offered the position a few months later, probably in December of 20. 17, yeah, 2017. And I had to think about it because I was nervous because it was so different. It felt so different at the time from what I thought I was going to do. So I asked specifically, I was like, uh, can I do the housing work? Um, because Chatham actually doesn't have a housing department um, within the government. A lot of cities and counties have community development departments or housing departments. And I previously worked for Orange County, North Carolina. Um, I got a little taste of what that was like, um, but Chatham doesn't have one. So I asked if I could have that on my plate. And the woman who um, offered me the job, Renee Pascal, who was the county manager at the time, graciously said yes. 
And so I accepted and it's really been kind of a, a smorgasbord of all the things that policy analysts normal, normally do that support kind of the operations of the county, um, but also being able to create housing policy and housing programs right out the gate. And that's something that I, that I really love. So I think that this career path for right now, this step feels really broad. Um, there's a lot of horizontal growth going on, but I love it, right? Because I get to be creative. And yes, yeah, so I think for right now, this is a really good place for me <clears throat> at the end of April to be two years. And there's just already been so much work that has been done and so much work that they've let me do. And I like places like that. I, I think I, I thrive in places that let me be creative this way. Cool. That's, that's great. Uh, sounds like a wonderful opportunity. <laughs> so, and it's funny how it works too. Like you, you kind of change as you go, because I've gone through that with entertainment, right? You, know, you want to be a tour promoter and then being an agent and then now podcaster. So totally mm-hmm. understand and can relate to you on that one. So I, I think public office and, you know, I used to intern for the city of Charlotte, the Charlotte International Cabinet within the one of the mayor's cabinets. So for me, I guess like it, it comes with it, its challenges being in that space. So I was like, how tough is your position? Um, (laughs) Great question. Um, I think some days I feel like my position is challenging. Other days I feel sometimes that it can be impossible. And I think the reason why I feel that way is because, you know, you know me, Cliff, we grew up in Charlotte, right? I grew Mm -hmm. up so I did not grow up in a place that had farms and had all these concerns about agriculture, agriculture and preserving that kind of character. Also, the poverty that I grew up seeing is much different than the poverty that exists in a rural area. So I think what the first thing that makes my job hard is the learning curve that I feel like consistently reveals itself like piece by piece. I think another thing that makes it challenging is I'm very acutely aware of the fact that even though I'm not I'm not a department head, I'm not a director of anything, I have to be really conscious of different stakeholders' perspectives. And I have to pay attention to our political climate and how kind of ready our commissioners and even my boss or my bosses are, are how ready they are to kind of jump in Um, to the work that implementing policies like affordable housing policies or the housing trust one might might require them to so I think that it's a it it feels like I'm juggling almost all the time Um, like I'm juggling different personalities but also that I'm I have to be really aware of what's going on with the people who make decisions who make the who have the final say rather but also I think what makes my job really tough is that I wish I could kind of clone myself so that I could have one version of myself always in the communities um, that make up Chatham and then one version of myself that could be in the office and then another version of myself that could be, you know, hopping from department to department and serving them because I feel like there's just not enough time in the day to serve everyone as much as I would like to, if that makes sense. And I think that I'm working on trying to figure out how to listen better, how to observe better, and how to kind of 
put everything I hear and and see into the policies that I bring that I bring forward. But I would say the tough the, the toughest thing is that I just it's a different environment. I'm still learning, but also that it just feels like a balancing act constantly. So doing what you do, what impact do you hope to make? I think that there's a few kind of key key things I hope to to make happen. One big impact I hope to have is to explain to is to express and to convince comfortably um, and respectfully um, to decision makers, whether they be elected or not, of the importance of being proactive. Oftentimes, you'll see government might be hesitant to be proactive or spend money ahead of time. And oftentimes that works well for them because they have so many other issues that they have to keep tabs on, like, you know, making sure that the the fiscal integrity of the county is strong and that, that they're healthy. But something I really hope to have an impact on is to kind of convince folks to have more of a proactive and reactive approach to implementing policy and investing in issues that we know are only going to get worse. And so if we were to invest in them early enough that we could curtail some of that, I think that's a fight that I will fight wherever I am. But I, fight, I feel like I fight every day. And it's not an ugly fight or anything. It's just a constant reminder that even though the problem might not be in everybody's face, that it's something that's only going to continue to get worse. Another impact that I hope to have is to really kind of promote uh, advocacy for community members and asking for what they need for different groups of community members to advocate for what they need. I think that Chatham has a very active resident group and in certain areas they're louder than others but I I would hope through relationship building that enough people would say oh okay I really can call up so-and-so oh I really can email so-and-so I can go to the office and visit so-and-so and I think a part of that is educating folks and building relationships with them right building relationships with them so that they understand look I am not out to get you here is what I know and here's what I don't know. And then education comes in when people, um, when we can, we can politely and respectfully explain like what local government, is, particularly what the county is responsible for and actually has control over versus what we don't have control over, right? Because I think sometimes tension can come from that too. So I would say those are kind of the three biggest things I really, really want to have to keep building relationships. I think it's super important. It's one of the favorite part aspects of my job. I want to convince decision makers and stakeholders to be a little more comfortable with spending and investing proactively because I think it's important. And we have lessons on what not to do all around us. So it's not as if we're doing it blindly. And then finally, just to kind of keep contributing to the educational piece about what local government can and can't do. Uh, because I think that the more people understand on both sides, the better we can do our job. I agree. I definitely agree. I do appreciate you, again, you know, taking time out of your schedule to come on the same show. It's definitely a pleasure having you on and definitely a, not only a great conversation, but a conversation that was needed, you know, because I'm all about using my platform to not only encourage people through stories of, you know, those who are, 
doing all these things around entertainment, but also having conversations around important things like this and being able to open people's eyes to these kinds of things. And at the same time, letting them know that like this impacts the industry and the industry impacts these things as well. So, you know, again, thank you for, you know, coming on the same show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is really cool. And I'm, I'm so proud of you and everything that, that you're doing. I appreciate that. Really do. Listeners, be sure to continue liking, sharing, subscribing. And again, if you're not following the same show, make sure to go follow. You know, I appreciate you guys for continuing to show your support. Thank you again. And you're listening to the same show, the show about nothing and everything. And until next time, we're out.